You are watching What's on the Telly with your hosts, Lee W. Johnson and Reverend Kai. Welcome back to What's on the Telly, and today we are going to be discussing Lovecraft Country. Let's talk about Lovecraft Country. I found this absolutely freaking amazing. Oh, I loved it. I just fucking loved it. It was great. I know. Um, I binged all 10 hours over like two days because I started in the afternoon and like had to make myself go to sleep, which was hard, and then got up in the morning and I'm like, all right, I'm doing my morning chores while I watch my show. <laughs> <laughs> what I found absolutely amazing though was that, that, you know, it's 10 episodes and they fit so much into it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they really say. did. They really did. Oh. I was I was looking to see if there was going to be a season two, and HBO said no. There's no season two, and mm. the main reason is they covered the novel it was based on, like mm. they used all their material. So there's no more. The story doesn't go on because there's no more of the story for them to make into a TV show, which sucks. Mm. But you know, somebody's going to have to write a new novel. That's all. That would be nice. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Although, unfortunately, just uh, recently, uh, Michael K. Oh, his last name. I always mess up his last name. Williams. I want to say Greer, and he's not Michael Greer. Michael K. Williams um, passed away unexpectedly. So oh, okay. that would also complicate things. I mean, they said. They weren't going to do a season two before that happened, but still. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, might mess things up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, as far as, you know, I think um, one thing that did, it didn't really bother me, but I found a bit odd was that it's called Lovecraft Country. So you kind of expect a bit more Lovecraft in it. Um, but there wasn't, I mean, right at the beginning, there was where he was dreaming and there was that monster that comes down and that, that's all very Lovecraft and the aliens and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, but after that, I suppose the order, uh, trying to get to, I think his name was Michael, the father, mm. trying to get to the, to the, to the garden of oh. Eden and paradise and all that. Um, stepping yeah. through gateways and whatnot could could signify or pertain to Lovecraft, but wasn't really that much Lovecraft in it. Well, I mean, they were like the cultists in the Lovecraft stories and the secret mm. orders and that sort of thing, which I thought was good. Um, and one of the things about Lovecraft stories is while they were all in the same universe, not every monster and not everything happened in every story. You know, so I kind of viewed this the same way, that there were just bits and pieces there. Because, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that Cthulhu was not in this story, because Cthulhu has been done to death. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Lovecraft, and everybody just goes straight to Cthulhu. That's it. Yeah. You know, and um, at the beginning, Atticus was talking about Yogg-Sagoth and a couple of the other... Um, lesser-known eldritch horrors from Lovecraft mm -hmm. lore, you know. But 
what I really liked about this show is that it had the vibe of the Lovecraft stories. It wasn't yeah. an homage to Lovecraft. It wasn't a retelling of one of Lovecraft's stories. It was an original story that had the same feelings of horrors and undiscovered terror and just this constant creeping, mounting, existential dread that never was solved. <laughs> you know, it didn't get better. It, it was never answered. And it just, it started high. It started really high on the terror scale and it just kept ramping successfully. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, what made Lovecraft stories so popular back in the day. Is they had that creeping dread that just got worse and worse and worse. And it kept you just hooked in, you know, mm. to continue in the story. So I really enjoyed that. And like I said, was very glad that there was no Cthulhu on the screen. Because, uh, mm. you know, it's everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that's actually the mistake I made, though, is that, you know, you think Lovecraft and you go straight to the Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. um, but there were other stories. And, you know, unless you're a, a real Lovecraft fan, a lot of people don't even know that those stories exist um, because True. it is just Necronomicon. Yeah, um, Cthulhu and the Necronomicon, those are the big things that everybody mm. knows. Yeah, because yeah. it fits, fits into the lore. The magical lore, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. the Necronomicon was actually a fairly central theme. They just didn't mm. use that word. They called it the Book of Names. Yeah. Which is appropriate because this story is not set in Europe. This story is set in the United States. And mm. so they wouldn't have used a Latin moniker. They would have used English. You know? Mm. And... This didn't have any history of, like, coming over from Europe or anything like that included in it. It was all American South, um, you know, antebellum era kind of history that then was now in modern times. Mm. And the, I think they handled the, um, the racism uh, pretty well. Um, yeah. You know, the whole, the whole fight from the the black, the American blacks, American African American side. Um, I think they depicted that pretty damn straight, actually. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what bigger terror is there than living in a racist country mm. where you are systematically tortured and killed? I mean, mm. you know, I I loved, I love that especially calling out Lovecraft in the title and the stories because Lovecraft was a massive racist, massive, massive racist. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of debate that his original stories are just white supremacist diatribes that he's cloaked in this fantastical language. I, I don't know. Um, could be, totally could be. There's definitely stuff in there that, that fits that. Um, but he might've just been crazy also who knows uh fantasy mm. comes from a variety of places and it's not always commentary but if that's what people are getting out of it and it's useful then great but i love that there was not dancing around the racist issue 
there was not, um, you know, being like, oh, well, I read Lovecraft and we have to have a talk about how racist he is and why you can't read him. You know, it was just head on, in your face, dealing with the, this source material as racism and turning it on its head and still using all of those fantastical storytelling bits. It really reminded me of Get Out, the movie, which is another piece of amazing, wonderful horror. And mm. that it was just, you know, direct in that manner and that terror that, you know, just 24-7 terror was palpable. It was really brought through. <clears throat> yeah, um, actually, I remember, I don't remember what the movie or the series was called, um, but it was years ago, so it was done before this. Um, it was all around Lovecraft. It might, it might have actually been a series, in, uh, one episode in a series, but it was all about Lovecraft. There was a, a group of people, white people, who got together and they did the whole Lovecraft thing, and um, they, they actually brought through uh, Cthulhu and everything else. But at some point, all of that got inherited into a black family. Um, so again, they were sort of trying to move over from that white supremacy to actually try and include uh, other races. Um, so I think a lot of people are trying to sort of portray that, get it out of there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, racism, in addition to, you know, bodily torture and terror, it's dehumanizing and therefore flattening, you know, mm. and it takes away all of those many options from the black community, from Asians, from everyone it's directed at. It flattens mm. them to one-dimensional beings and doesn't allow them to explore, uh, to have access to all of these worlds, including fantasy and magic and, and everything else, you know, uh, which is something that we're finally, finally seeing in mainstream media being pulled back and reclaimed and shown and represented, which I think is great. Yeah. And this, this was obviously a, a key piece of that because the finale HBO reported 1.5 million viewers for the mm. airing of the finale of this show, which is yeah. wonderful. I mean, that's some serious reach. Kick ass, mm. you know? <laughs> Believe it, though. <clears throat> Frog in throat again today, sorry. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah you, as you said, the whole theme of Lovecraft is there. But then we've got the um you know when he goes to uh the war and there's the 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 fox spirit oh yeah the kumiho i thought yeah. that was great that, that was, was amazing a, a wonderful interpretation of the fox mm. spirit and the kumiho and that that whole storyline in and of itself could have been its own show you know mm how that developed and everything else and the lore behind it i it was wonderful absolutely mm. wonderful and how that got woven in with atticus and his mm. family's story you know and how it all came together was really great yeah well, that's, that's what i was 
that was what I liked most about it is that, as I said, there's just so much packed into it. So you've got like, everything happening with, with Attica's uh, family. You've got this order uh, who's trying to get to the Garden of Eden um, and become immortal. Mm-hmm. You've got, uh, you know, this, this fox spirit. Um, just all this, just bits and bobs and things and everything. It's just fantastic. Tons and tons of lore in there. Tons and tons of yeah. history. And lots and lots of references. I loved the soundtrack. Oh, I love the mm. soundtrack. The spoken, uh, the speeches and the music that was over the top of the scenes was just, yeah. I mean, just a punch in the gut. Uh, just amazing, amazing craft to do that and to feel that. There were some times where I had to pause because I was crying too much and I was like, I can't read the subtitles. <laughs> I have to pause and get my shit together so I can watch this. Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to talk about my absolute favorite scene, well, favorite episode. And I loved it because they, um, Atticus, Atticus and his father do that spell, the mm-hmm. protection spell. And they do all the symbols and they say all the right words and nothing happens. And that's, that's really what happens in real life. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you do all this stuff and you expect, especially beginners, they expect like waves of energy coming in and barriers being put up and all this stuff happening and then nothing happens. But it did. Right. Because late, later on, he gets shot at and this that's just fantastic. I loved it. And this big bloody monster comes out and attacks everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, I was like, yeah. And there's a there's a storyline in there that they don't really address that somehow Titus doing this original spell is connected to these monsters that are running wild in the woods in Artem. But mm. there's also some that protect the members of Titus's bloodline because that spell has has uh, it's connected to him his blood. And that gets passed down. That's how Atticus ends up involved. But it's only after the invulnerability spell that the Yog sagoth looking creature comes and protects him. But it's only one of them. It's only one of them, and it's a dark one instead of a white one, which I thought was mm. poignant. You know? Yeah, because you, you see that later when... Um, oh, what's her name? The young girl. Letitia? Oh, no, the... D. Diana. D, yeah. When she's uh, trapped in the car and she's being attacked by them, by all the beasts, mm-hmm. and the one comes along, and which is the one her. that protected Atticus, mm-hmm. and protects her. So mm-hmm. same bloodline and everything. So, yeah, it's, it was just that one, uh, which is quite interesting. But she, yeah. she tames it quickly, very quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? And she is, she is the ultimate inheritor of all of this crazy magical stuff you can tell um you know and with the book she reads the book at the end and then she reveals she is the woman with the mechanical arm like you know i knew that her mom was making her a mechanical arm earlier in the story but i didn't put it together until the very end reveal that oh she's the one that gave the book to atticus when he went to the future to make sure things would go the way they needed to go you know, and like, 
usually foreshadowing like that I find terribly clunky and I always pick up on it early and then I'm like nonplussed when it's revealed in the show. I'm just like, eh, duh, you know. But this one, it actually, I got the reveal when I was supposed to get the reveal because there was so much else going on <laughs> to keep up with and so much good story and visual effects and just everything. And I loved, I loved the way the order looked like terrible inbred old white men mm. i mean they did a great job of that you know exactly how those um you know kkk rallies look and stuff of just the the pure whiteness people that end up looking like fucked up dogs you know mm. and i went i had to go look up pictures of the actors because i'm like nobody really looks like that do they and no they'd done some extra stuff with makeup but still yeah it was it was good and creepy the way they looked just like the white characters in get out had that 1950s white people creepy um that was just spot fucking on and it came through so well so well <laughs> but you know to add a whole nother level of horror on top just with makeup and hair and clothing and and the posturing of the actors that was yeah. just so wonderful and i was really impressed with all the body switching that was happening you know sure i'm aware that they're different actors portraying this but they were the same characters they were such the same characters it was so good so good yeah. you know you yeah. could really see ruby being ruby when she was a white woman mm. you know it was just it was just great and uh, william and christina were clearly the same person you mm. know it just amazing blown away by so many things <laughs> um one thing that did confuse me was it was the whole thing was um the cop um, the police chief or whatever he was. He was obviously part of the order. Yet he rejected William. In fact, he tried to kill William. Well, did actually succeed, but he didn't know it. I thought they explained that. that... I, I might have just missed it. I don't know. I couldn't quite figure that one out. So the cop ended up being next in line for running his own lodge. But Christina thought it was supposed to be her. But she mm. wasn't given anything because she was female instead of male. And so she long ago became William and was going to have that lodge. But the cop and William got in a fight and that's part of how William died? No, that doesn't make sense with the timeline. Because yeah, she's... She tells I know, her. I know, she, I know she was trying to get it, but I'm trying. I couldn't figure out why the cop and William. Well, the cop killed William. Yeah. Because she becomes she becomes William to make it appear as if William is still alive, and therefore he's going to get the he's going to be the successor. Yeah, I think it was that William was going to get the lodge, and the cop killed him so he could get the lodge, and mm -hmm. rise in power in the order. Um, and then Christina used William 
in that comatose state to make the transformation potion because William was fairly high up in the order, they were lovers, and she wanted to keep learning magic, you know, mm. and that was a way that she could have access by being in a male body. That sounds right for the timeline because William or Christina, I don't remember which body they're in, tells Ruby that story about what happened. So Ruby will go plant the ammonite with the symbol in it in the cop's office. Mm. And then later when Ruby is confronting her about it, she said, or Christina says, it's true. That part is true. And then adds more of the story. But I yeah. had my timelines mixed up there about when William died. So. Yeah. Uh, that was a bit confusing. I mean, because later on as well, uh, the cop realizes what's happening because he's trying to get transplanted with a, a black man's body. Mm -hmm. But he's dying. So he, he sees through, he, sees, he seems to see through um not even an apparition, I mean, it was a physical transformation that uh, Christina took on William's figure. Yeah. But he, he saw it when, when William walks into the office. Yeah. Well, seemingly, the cop knows that William died, so to speak. And mm. so has figured out that's what's going on because he seems to know a lot of magic in the Order and has no problem using it. That's why he's got magic to stitch parts of his body back together and mm. that sort of thing and it goes along with that that white supremacist ideal that black bodies are somehow stronger than white bodies you know that seems mm. to be why he's got the torso of a black man and the idea that they are disposable and can be used for parts which is mm. horrific but mm. obviously the order has a whole bunch of necromantic stuff going on because oh, the, yeah. the cop just uses corpses and necromancy and everything like it's an everyday thing. It's just another tool in his arsenal. But mm -hmm. somehow Christina does a spell knowing that the stupid cop can't be killed because he just puts a new body together every time with magic. And does a spell that instead of being um, uh, just killing him, it's a transformation spell it's a variation on the spell she's using to be William that makes it so no matter what body part he puts in there the damage happens again mm. because it has to reassert itself so that's how she finally gets rid of the cop that seemingly she can't kill because he's using this magic to put his body back together all the time yeah yeah that whole cop thing was i don't know it's probably because I, I hated him so much i didn't actually focus on what was happening yeah he was a uh, um a villain that was easy to hate i uh, mean you know just all of the all of the terrible things rolled up into one disgusting actor mm. you know yeah. one character and the actor that did it man he was snide and smarmy and you could just tell from the way he walked first on the screen like this this is a horrible person you know um, it's probably a nice person in real life probably <laughs> i always wonder about that those actors that play those terrible villains you know mm. and the rest of their time yeah yeah 
um william defoe is one of those where he plays just a great villain you know mm. a great terrible scary guy and like i see him in interviews and i can't reconcile <laughs> the two <laughs> i love his acting but you know play good mm. i don't see him play good guys maybe that's just i don't watch a lot of movies with him as a good guy i don't know <laughs> um hippolyta going to the uh various dimensions is quite interesting that was great that was absolutely um, great yeah because what what struck me as really interesting was the last one she goes to um where it's kind of that 60s type um spaceship and the little aliens come, come wobbling up oh yeah it was like complete fantasy. It was it was almost like the Jetsons. But it it matched the comic. It did. It matched the Orinthia Blue comic that Dee created. But what what I found interesting was that she's going all to all these different dimensions, these different timelines, and everything else, and then she ends up there, which is like almost complete fantasy. So it it kind of speaks to the idea that we can create our own reality and it can be as fantastical as we want it to be i didn't see it that way i i saw mm -hmm. it as um all things are possible and yeah, so, everything mm -hmm. that the artists were connecting with was somehow real but that's also like a big theme from lovecraft Lovecraft said again and again that he connected to this reality he's describing in dreams and in fantasies, and he's just writing it down. He didn't make it. Mm. He just picked up on it, you know, and Hippolyta going through, she says at one point, like, I lived 200 years or I lived in 200 realities or something like that, just showing the vast amount of learning and knowledge that she acquired, mm. you know. And then she was obviously like an amazing genius before that experience because she does mm. all the math on the fly for the mass rotation calculations to get the time machine to work. Like, wow, you know, mm. and she knows all that all works. She, she unlocks the orary. She knows enough about astronomy and uh, physics and everything else to just do that stuff and understand it. And then she goes mm. and just learns everything, you know, yeah. and just becomes an amazing, amazing polymath genius. It's really cool. Mm. No, no, it was just, it was just that last, last scene. Um, because she, I mean, basically she created the reality which portrayed what her daughter had drawn in the comic. So she was actually completely creating that reality herself. Yeah, I didn't see it that way. I just yeah. thought that she. Mm -mm. I just thought that she tapped into a universe that was already there, and it was. That means that. That means that D also tapped into it because she drew exactly the same figure on a comic beforehand. Right, right, and yeah. that was my my reasoning. That line, that all of the, the artistic material, the stories, everything, aren't created; they're connected. Mm -hmm with the parallel universes and everything else so but that was a base assumption not necessarily in the show that's a base assumption i had because of association with lovecraft mm. so yeah 
I wouldn't class myself as a huge Lovecraft fan, but yeah, I have read, I think, all of the stories and stuff. Mm. The curse that D gets from the cop. Yeah. That's 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 really that point when I really really hated the cop. Um. Because the the character that starts chasing her is from the book cover that got knocked off the shelf. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there are more racist themes in there. But then they become these kind of weird morphed twins that creepily dance. Um, and she turns into one of them. That's a really interesting curse. A really interesting curse. Yeah. And when she's in the shop and she's fighting them, one of them actually dies. Really? I missed that. I'm not, sure it, I'm not sure it dies, but it kind of it kind of crumples to the ground. <clears throat> mm. And the other one, and then and then Montrose comes in and stops her from actually fighting, from hitting these mm-hmm. these uh, apparitions with a with the baseball bat. And because he does that, the other one can reach out and actually gets hold of her. Mm-hmm. But that was the one on the left. But the one on the right sort of crumpled down. I think she actually killed it. Mm. I thought she was like knocking him out, and they'd stay down for a little bit, but then they'd get back up, which was why she had to keep swinging and knocking them, and was just there mm. fighting. But that was my impression. But I mean, this show's so great because there's they don't explain every little detail and show every little detail, even though the monsters are on the screen. Mm interpretations can be different as well yeah which Mm. you know makes it all the more scary uh if you if you explain too much it's not scary yeah okay we won't explain too much (laughs) (laughs) well Well, hopefully everybody's seen it already so yeah yeah. surely you've seen it or there's a ton of spoilers (laughs) it's as per usual (laughs) yeah totally yeah um, but then that leads to the time travel thing as well. Yeah. Which was quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I like I like the um, the scene when Montrose and Atticus are in the alleyway and uh, they're watching uh, Montrose and his his love interest um, who then gets attacked and they then he then realizes that Atticus is the the stranger that mm-hmm. comes to save them. Yeah. So th- this happened to him. Um, and then, you know, that whole, because of the time travel, and it's almost, it's almost like that, that leading of fate again, you know, yep. there, there was something, a curse happened. They had to go save D in order to do that. They had to time travel back to the past. And because of that, Atticus could then save, uh, kind of save his father actually. Um, and then that whole time continues again. It's just it's really, really interesting. Yeah. Well, and and when they're going back, Hippolyta points out that they have to find Tulsa 1921 in this Earth. You know, she makes sure mm. it's the same timeline. So, which, you know, does that whole loop mm. into to time travel stories that... Uh, you know, where we remember something that already happened or hasn't happened yet kind of stuff, which I think is, you know, super fun to play with in in time travel stories. But 
yeah, that moment where Montrose and Atticus are having the conversation and Atticus realizes, oh, I'm the stranger. I mm -hmm. have to pick up the baseball bat because they're both waiting for the stranger to appear. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, really good story point there. And the the sheer horror that was the Tulsa massacre. I mean, they didn't have a ton of time to get that into the story. You know, it was one mm -hmm. episode, which was only a tenth of the story, but it was it was in there well, you know, the horror that was that that night. And I like that they actually at the end when Letitia has got the book and is walking back to the uh, hotel to take the portal back, they show government planes come and dropping bombs on Main Street. Mm. You know, which is super controversial here. Like, you can't talk about that. Um, you know, they will accept that some white people went crazy and slaughtered Black Wall Street, but they won't talk about the, the Army's involvement. So the mm -hmm. fact that that was in there, just that little bit in something that had such big viewership, I think is really good. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Um, there we know. Well, we've got the whole theme with Montrose being gay and is... Mm. Is he even Atticus's father? Or is it George? You know, and how close the brothers become and Hippolyta because of what they went through. You know, or not Hippolyta. Um, Hippolyta marries George. Atticus's mother. I don't remember her name. Dora, I, I think? I think it could have been Dora. I can't remember either. But you know, that that whole process and how they become a family and view family and the different ways that family is understood and approached in the complexity of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Because there's, you know, the regular terror of being black in 1960s America, which I think this is the 60s or 70s. I didn't, I didn't I see. It was earlier. Maybe it was the 50s. Because they do have the um, the bras with the nipples sewn on them. That was a 50s thing. Yeah. But that horror of the Jim Crow era and everything else. And then on top of it, you know, fucking white people have real magic. And that makes everything way, way worse. Way, way worse. You know. <laughs> the deck is already stacked. And now it's terrible. But the struggle of the bonds of family and what that means and the fact that this whole mess that they're in with the order and everything else is because of family mm -hmm. you know christina talks about you're the last of my family you know all of that is in there as another complex thing which you know is the reality for many many black americans because Rape was super common amongst the enslavers, you know, mm. and lots of people have terrible, terrible genetic heritage. And 
this ties all of that complexity together of what's genetic and what matters and is it family and where are those bonds and what are those responsibilities and if you have the opportunity to escape one terror you know get out of of the the racist oppression but you have to sacrifice your family to do it how does that work and where does that all go because that's a question thousands of people have had to face you know mm. so the way that they address that whole story and being gay and then the story of molestation and rape with the kumahimo story i mean that's a big huge complex topics in there that they wove in so well so well mm. you know to express what terrors they really are what horrors they really are yeah I think one of the things that was nice about this was that, I mean, Atticus is kind of the main character, but I think all of them have a, a main character type of aspect to them. Yeah, um, we get to learn the backstories of mm. all of these characters. You know, um, we hear about Ruby and Letitia's relationship, especially there at the beginning when Letitia comes back and performs with Ruby and then they kind of have that spat about you know what what is family what does it mean what does supporting mm. each other mean in all of this you know but yeah everybody has a backstory um built in depth the cop doesn't but we don't need to know why he's an evil asshole no he's a he's a minor character yeah, yeah. and Should have been removed at the beginning several of the order members um, at least the ones that are named, we get some of their story, but not a lot. We don't spend all this time focusing on them, which I think is mm. good because this is Atticus's family, you know, towards the end when he's got the, the book, Lovecraft Country, he points out that this is our family story. Mm. You know, some of the details aren't right. Some things are different, but this is our family story. Yeah. Also, the inclusion of um, because we we all we see a lot of the the white man's magic uh, from the order and all of that, um, but when Letitia actually protects her house and uh, brings the mm. I'm assuming the the mambo or the the voodoo queen or whoever yeah she I was. thought she was a mambo that was my impression I mm. don't know that they all heard that. Or address her. I don't even remember what her I don't name think is. I, do. I, I don't know. If she's. I don't know. If she remember her name coming up. Yeah, but I could just be Probably missing it. Probably Yeah. Um. So they've got the the white man's magic and the, the black the black man's magic, mm -hmm. uh, which then comes into it, which is fantastic. Um. And the whole seance down in the basement. And all of the ghosts come together, and as 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 they're actually all chanting and getting rid of the the antagonist in the middle, who was the, the white enslaver, mm -hmm. they start all their parts, their yeah, body they, parts start they reforming. They get restored. And, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But that that uh, the basketball guy with the little baby head that was a bit disturbing. <laughs> a lot of them were disturbing as you looked at Very disturbing. yeah what what had to have happened to their bodies 
you know, mm. the horrors of humanity, as they say. Yeah. There is nothing so scary as a white man in the dark. Yeah. I've forgotten the story, though, that the the white man in that house was doing, I think, experiments mm-hmm. on black people. Yeah. Yeah. He was so doing... he's probably sewing body parts together and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Horrible stuff. And, you know, that horrible medical experiment history is part of the legacy of racism in the U.S. too. You know, that yeah. was very common, unfortunately, and considered morally fine because of all of these stupid ideas, um, mm. you know, terrible racist ideas about how black bodies were different and black women didn't feel pain and all sorts of things that were justification for enslavement in the first place. So, yeah, that holy story there that just comes through a little bit you know mm-hmm. and that's the thing so many of the horrors and the terrors in this story they can't be told in their full concept because they're just so massive and you know we're telling another story and it has to fit into at least a season <laughs> of tv watching but they touch mm-hmm. on these and if you don't know the history and the complexity of that stuff, you don't you don't pick up the full terror of it. But if you do, it's just it's horrifying because it's one after another after another after another after another. There's mm-hmm. no there's no pause. Every time you turn around, there's some terrible horror to confront and deal with in the midst of the ongoing terror, you know. And the family in this story has to deal with all of that, and magic is real. And it mm. turns out white people are using it for really bad things. You know, mm. some cannibalism yeah. and some weirdness. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's uh, terror that they must have gone through in that era, in that time, was definitely portrayed well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And still, you know happiness and joy and celebration Mm. you know that that duality uh, that paradox that has to happen in in such circumstances Mm. i think ruby is a really good um demonstration and contrast of that i mean all of the characters in their own way but because ruby specifically goes between being a black woman and a white woman. Yeah. And stepping between worlds. Yeah, dealing with that conflict and that terror and everything else. But then you figure out, oh, Christina is not just doing that. She's becoming a man. Mm. You know, to have access to all of this stuff that the order doesn't want her to know, doesn't want her to have just because of genitals you know yeah. so it's yeah. yeah it's very skillfully done very skillfully yeah. done all the, all the different layers i suppose you have the the white man who's at the top and then the woman who the white woman who uh isn't as low but is in the middle somewhere and then you have the black people um you know so you've got yeah. all these layers portrayed extremely well yeah and mm-hmm. the misogynoir you know uh, of the uh, black women on the bottom because of the intersection of racism and misogyny 
but then mm. there's the really weird thing that happens when ruby becomes a white woman and gets that job she takes it out on the black woman that's there because she took that opportunity and she talks about you know it's a race to the finish line because you only get one the white people don't let in everyone they let in a token you know, and watching that play out, that's, you know, more about family and the concept of, you know, loyalty and, and solidarity and all of those sorts of things. You know, I've read studies, uh, books about, you know, what that was like in the 50s and 60s and how that tore families apart. Mm. Yeah, the way, the way she treated the... the um employee it was a bit weird it was a bit strange because at some point it was almost like she i know she was jealous of her to begin with because Mm -hmm. she wanted that job when she didn't take that opportunity so there was that jealousy there as well but it was almost like she was trying to be tough on her to try and push her forward yeah but that white privilege as she continued started to come in a bit more and more and more um well, she gave sure. she gave the speech that you hear so often when you're part of a minority culture. You're always mm. a representation first of your race or your culture. You don't get to be an individual. You have to mm. be the best. You have to be better than the best because they're judging you by this horrible standard and they're judging all of us. You know, it and I I don't know many white people that have heard that speech. <laughs> you know, mm. It's not something that they have to experience. It's one of those white privileges. Yeah, true. But Ruby (laughs) says it outright, but it makes no sense because she's saying it as a white woman. As a white woman, yeah. You know, and without that identification, what she's saying makes no sense and doesn't land for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Um, that the framing for this was very interesting. When we start, they're going on a trip to write the guidebook, the green book, which was about where uh, black people could go at the time and be safe because there were sundown towns. And they explain mm -hmm. sundown towns. And then there's even a sundown county, which, yeah, that was happening, you know, and, and it made it so that Black people couldn't travel at all through there because of exactly what happened. You didn't have time. You couldn't make it through, you know. And just that setting, that there were these ridiculous, crazy laws in place that wouldn't even let Black people travel. Like, Mm. not stay somewhere. I mean, there were the horrors of, you know, They went to the one diner they were trying to find and they figured out, oh yeah, you know why the White House is white? Because they had to paint over it because it was burned. Mm. And they figured that out, you know. But that whole house that this, all of this horror grows in then is a really wonderful frame because it fits in with the ideas of the order and all of these rules and everything else and how each person has to push through them in their own way in order to find meaning and understanding and um, actualize in some way 
And that's not a good thing. Mm. You know, that is a horrible transformation process that shouldn't be applied to anyone, but it, it is, it is the constrictors of horror that is our real world. It's not a complete fantasy world. We didn't get drop, dropped into Middle Earth, you know. Mm. So I find, I thought that framing was really interesting. I mean, you know, the traveling and the Green Book and that sort of thing, there's lots of definite history moments woven in. But just the the restrictions on travel and, you know, black folks found a way. They made these guidebooks and there were people that were brave enough that were doing the work for their people to go out and figure out where was safe and where was not. Mm. And they had to keep it updated. They had to continue doing these trips, you know, um, just the same way that they had to push against the edges of magic and claim what was rightfully theirs. And there were some times where it looked like it was amazing hope when they found um, the n native lady that they brought back. I think she seemed to me to be mm. Inca or Mayan, that area. I don't remember if they actually named her tribe and her people. No, I think they did. And she was, she was made into a siren as well. Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. you know, they, there was all this hope. Like, mm. she can just translate. She speaks the language, you know, and she has these pages, and, and then all of a sudden, it's gone. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, Montrose really didn't want uh, his son following that path, but uh, I don't think he had much of a choice at the end well, of the he, day. He knew how much pain there was there. He knew how much potential there was for danger there. You know, mm. and he just wanted, didn't want to deal with it, didn't want to do it. You mm. know, why, why go mess with all the white people when all they ever do is eat and consume and take, you know, just leave them to their craziness. Mm. And he really did try, but yeah, ultimately, despite his efforts to protect his family, they got involved with everything anyways, and Atticus did end up dying. You know, mm. and that whole line, especially with the going back in time and him actually being the stranger that saved Montrose and George and I think Dora. And, you know, it really brings up questions about what is fate. Yeah. If there's all these yeah. parallel universes, if there's millions and millions of Earths to go through and you can travel in time, mm. what is fate and what is free will? And Hippolyta pushes the, the borders of free will, you know, name yourself, which ties into the whole book of names and the theory that the Sons of Adam was built on, that naming is the, the magic, it is the logos, it is the process. Mm. But also that you can become whoever you want to become. Mm -hmm. You have the potential for it, so, you know, if you pursue it hard, hard enough, you can be anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Christina's definition of magic in this show I thought was interesting. And they don't spend a lot of time explaining it. 
They say, I remember. you need the words, you need the location, and you need a body. Yeah. And, and didn't she speak about a tent as well at some stage? A tent? Intent. Oh, intent. I think she says intent is not enough. Okay. Um, but, you know, she points out that location matters. Like when they uh, reset the timeline on Dee's curse, because that's all Christina can do. She points out that Dee was born here, so that location is really good. There's plenty of stuff in there. Um, and she has the words, and somebody there has the blood. Then, of course, comes up the debate if, you know, George and Montrose and all of that sort of stuff comes out, which doesn't actually affect Dee. But Hippolyta comes back just in time, luckily. And, of course, being the fierce black mom that she is, she's like, oh, we ain't just resetting shit. We're going to go fix it. Let's just go get the source of magic. Because now she has way more knowledge than Christina. She's lived 200 lifetimes or, or something like that. And so she knows, oh, we have to get to the original source and figure that out. Because that's obviously what the cop used to put that curse on her. Because that's the source of magic that this order has. Mm. I actually loved it when they when they were back at the um, uh, time machine thingy. And they're going to send Atticus and everybody back in time. And uh, they said, well, what does it need? It needs a motherboard. What's a motherboard? Me. Yep. yep. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah, that was brilliant. Because <laughs> she, she was really the mother figure yeah. for yeah, everybody. For everyone. And she was, yeah. you know, the, the continuous source of wisdom and knowledge. Mm. That they weren't even necessarily aware of just how much she had. Mm. You know? The, the massive amount of wisdom and knowledge that she had from lived experience, from fighting. I love that they showed that that whole scene where she learned to fight and then she led an army. Mm. You know, that was, that was deeply moving. The scene mm. of black women and black mothers fighting and just fighting again and again and again to raise children in that horror you know mm. and yeah, she has to deal mothers. yeah i think mothers in general are fighting all the time i as well it was a nice representation of that but she's pissed at the beginning well after george dies Atticus, mm. atticus comes back and stays with her to try to help out and she's pissed because atticus assumes that she needs help she mm. needs help with the guidebook. She needs help with this. She needs help with that. He has to come be George. And she's like, asshole, I am taking care of you. I am running my own fucking house. <laughs> you know, I am putting up with your ass, doing stupid stuff in my house. And she can clearly handle making the guidebook. She, mm. you know, George even says at one time, you know, I need to wait on you to edit it before I publish it. You know, when he's talking to Hippolyta. So they obviously do this as a team. Yeah. But George is usually the one that travels because uh, not only is there racism, there's still misogyny, and he's a little bit safer than she is. Mm. You know, 
So, and Atticus has no idea that all that is going on. He's just like, I'm gonna come help. And he doesn't know why Hippolyta is just sick of his shit. I think he also felt a bit guilty. Like he had to make it up to her somehow. Right. But couldn't tell her couldn't tell her what happened at the same time. She she saw through that all the time. Yeah, she saw through it right from the beginning. She knows that she's not getting the whole story. Mm. You know, and that she's gotta figure out what happened. She's gotta know. So yeah. but you know, that in there too I thought was was well crafted in the story, how that came through. Mm. And when when she's going through all the different lifetimes, when she goes back to George and George is alive, um, and she realizes then that the whole problem was that she was made to be small. Mm-hmm. And even though he saw the potential when they got married in her, she still continued to become smaller and smaller and smaller. And that happens to so many people in so many relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? And then... And yeah. That that seemed to trigger um, the end of it because then she now she realized she's lived all these lifetimes, but it was just that one thing that she was continually made to feel smaller and smaller through her life, and all she had to do was break that, and she could then name herself. She could be whoever she wanted to be, and I, I loved it. Yeah, well, she had to work through her own shit before she could be there for somebody else. You can't pour from an empty cup, Mm. you know? And yeah, that conversation she has with George, I think is very moving, you know? Mm. And I'm sure something that definitely women in the fifties were experiencing. I'm sure lots and lots of women are still experiencing, Uh, you know, because the, the standard view is that women support their husbands and that's their job and so on and so forth you know i mean that's why feminism is a thing because it shouldn't Mm. just be this one funnel track to this one thing if that's not what you want to do no no it's still as strong now as it was then i think Um, well it's not it's not as out in the open so it's even Mm. harder it's harder to attack and harder to address because you know yeah, but whole, whole big mess, whole big mess. And I come back to, they fit, fit so much into 10 episodes. Oh, they did. It was amazing. So much. I am definitely going to have to read this book because, you know, the book always has more than the TV show or the movie adaption does. It's just the way fiction works, you know, Mm. but, and knowing that they covered the whole story in this season in the book like makes me more optimistic to read the book because <laughs> it's a complete storyline i did think mm. that when they ended the season there with d and the mechanical arm that there could be more but it mm. did kind of loop and complete the cycle and you figured out oh this was d here and this was hippolyta here and so on and so forth you know where mm. that all fit together yeah i'm gonna have to watch it again now oh yeah <laughs> This is this is one I will come back to and rewatch many many times because I I'm yeah. sure there's so much in here there's so much in here I'm sure there's nuance and there's bits and there's references that I'm not picking up on yeah you know either because I just missed it in the the flood of emotions and information that was in the show or because I don't know 
you know, there, it's not my history, unfortunately. I mean, I'm in the U.S., I'm pretty close to Tulsa, but, um, you know, lots of this stuff, as we say a lot, none of this is taught in schools. Mm -hmm. Black history is one month, the shortest month of the year, and some bullshit, and all they ever do is talk about Martin Luther King, and maybe, maybe if you're super lucky, Malcolm X, you know, mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, all of this history is not well represented. And I think the, the portrayal of it in popular fiction stories like this, it's so important. You know, mm. we talk about all the time, representation matters. But getting it in front of everybody's eyes so that yeah. they can <clears throat> be like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? And some people might just assume that it's it's fiction when it's not or never pick up on it but lots of people the little switch is getting turned on and they're going to look into things and learn things yeah. i mean i had an idea but i never knew it was that bad i mean what was it sundown counties mm, yeah never heard of that in my life oh i have no idea really yeah sundown mm. towns and sundown counties were jim crow era bullshit for quite some time and i mean they didn't just go away in the 60s with the civil rights movement they mm. were still a thing i'm sure there are still a few that are like that it's now technically illegal but you know if the if law enforcement in this little town is full of white supremacist clan members mm. you know nothing to do about it yeah well because nobody's going to go in and question it well and you know the the united states government has never declared the KKK a terrorist organization or shut it down. They went after the Black mm. Panthers who were just feeding kids and protecting mm. their, their communities, but they didn't fucking shut down the KKK. Whose mm. whole purpose is lynchings and terrorization. So, yeah. Some white supremacist country that still has it entrenched in their laws and that's why racism is systematic. No, it takes generations to get that out of out of the system anyway. Yeah, we've lots we've and had, lots of generations. We've only had two or three generations since the official end of slavery, mm. and uh, I know a lot of people want to say that you know, when the old racist people die off, the next generation will do better, but not without education, not without learning, no. not without teaching, because the racists mm. raise racist kids, you know. So. That's exactly. It. I mean, I see it a lot here as well. Um, you know, a lot of people are becoming more educated and open and accepting and everything else, but there's there's just a a body. Um, it just gets passed from parent to child, and it just continues that way. Um, and it doesn't matter what you try and say, that's it, because that's how that's the impression. That's how they were raised, and that's how they were programmed. Not yep. much you can do about it until well, you just, that's why I say lots and lots of generations for it to come out. Well, I mean, there's, um, there are organizations, um, uh, that help deprogram people, um, from cults and that sort of thing. And white supremacy is a cult. It's a, mm. you know, a belief, uh, system based on made up shit. So, um, but fighting it at every turn dismantling the systems that are racist 
you know, bringing all of this stuff to light, because a lot of people don't know. They don't even know how horrible it still is. I mean, mm. history is is terrifying, and that's why, you know, the existential dread that Lovecraft talked about in his original books boils so well onto U.S. racism, because it's constant terror, constant terror, you know, and it's terror at every level. There's no reprieve. You can't go to law enforcement. They're the enforcers. You can't go to the government. They're the creators of it. You know, you can't necessarily turn to your neighbors. You don't know who you can trust. Nothing. There's no, no way out, yeah. you know, and I, I really hope the, the massive success of the movie Get Out and then the massive success of this series produces more. Because, you know, popular media, it gets people watching and thinking and, and gets the information out there. Um, not everybody's going to pick up a, a textbook or, you know, read Baldwin or, you know, that sort of thing. But they should. should be taught in schools. But um, anything, anything to get people to pay attention and see the constant terror that is happening and how it's still ongoing. Because if we don't pull up the weeds, if we don't root out the races, then they just grow a new generation of races. Yeah, and exactly. the the thing keeps on going and keeps on compounding. Mm. But yeah. I haven't seen Get Out. I'm just actually going get mm. that and get that and get out. Yeah, yeah. Good horror <laughs> story. Very good horror story. Very much existential dread. It's great. Yeah. Great. Um, so the magic in this show, we talked a little bit about the Mambo that comes and does magic. And obviously she ends up protecting the house and keeps the people with bad intentions out. Mm. They hit that magical wall and then they all look at the X in the goat's blood yeah. like, oh, oh. Well, there ain't shit yeah. I can do about that. Even Christina <laughs> looks over at it like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I cannot yeah, quite interesting this. They, 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 they're portrayed as these powerful people. Um, but then the other side of the queen is just as powerful. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's, that's great that that's in there. But the magic that the Sons of Adam and the Braithwaites use is like really minimal compared mm. to magic in general. They have this incantation formula. They always use the, the words, the location and the body, you know, they don't have any variation on that. And there's no gods involved. There's no spirit mm. attendants. There's no helpers, perhaps these Yogg-Sagoth creatures are on their side early on when they meet Christina in the woods and she like saves them from the creatures she maybe calls them off maybe they won't attack her it's not real clear what's going on but all of their magic is really built on power and influence and money you know mm. a lot of what Christina can do is because she controls a town and lives in a big house and has a lot of money her magic itself is not 
terribly powerful and it has no innovation. She can't, mm. she can't step outside those boundaries. She does make new spells and she points out that the men in the order didn't do that, but she's doing that, but she, you know, it's still within this framework that is all strangely <laughs> biblical and very misogynistic about the power of naming things. And the thing they kind of dance around but don't directly address is that once something is named, that, that, that's it. It's been named. You can add, but you can't subtract. And Hippolyta uses that very successfully. You know, showing the many, many faces that she is and the complexity that she is, and she's always still Hippolyta. Yeah. But um, watching the Braithwaites, they don't use that successfully. They just want to go back in time and be the original namer. They don't have that depth and that complexity and that forethought. They can make variations, but they aren't, they aren't actually innovating anything inside that magical process and christina kind of gets a successful trick she figures out a transformation thing and like she uses it for everything you know um it's like you know suddenly everything's a nail so just use a hammer but she she works and works and works on this spell and there's lots of fancy looking diagrams and magical looking drawings because set dressing is always super cool um, but it's like she has to work out the geophysics of the magic, whereas the Mambo just, just does the work. Yeah. You know, she doesn't have to work out all of this stuff and every little detail and everything else because she has spirits, she has allies, she has community around her, you know? So I thought that was an interesting dichotomy just from looking at the types of magic, the the Sons of Adam magic felt very small and narrow to me, the way it was portrayed. But it does it does kind of portray things as they are, uh, I think, uh, very closely. Um, maybe not as they are, but how they're portrayed to be. Um, so the Sons of, Sons of Adam are um, a magical order, ceremonial magic. And it's often portrayed as very mathematical. Mm. Uh, you know, the inclusion of alchemy. Um, so I think that, that was portrayed quite well. But then the Mambo's magic is very spiritual, very, very earthy. Um, and that just came across perfectly as well. Um, so I think the way those two different types of magic are kind of perceived mm. um, yeah. was quite well done. And there was, there was a lot of inclusion with, with Christina's magic. Was, I mean, there's the alchemy and the transformation spell. Because uh, she has to take an ointment, which obviously comes from the blood of, of the corpse or, or the, mm -hmm. the comatose person. Um, <clears throat> and then with uh, the invinci invincibility spell, the Mark of Cain, um, in that one, all she does is just say a few words. Yeah. Uh, but that was passed down from her father. Right, that was not her creation. Yeah, well, she stole it. I don't know if it was passed down. I think she actually stole it. Because there was a point where he had to actually 
take off that invinci inv invincibility spell from himself, right? To so that he could actually go to the go to the Garden of Eden, and right. I think she actually somehow she, I think she mentioned somehow stole it from him at that time. Yeah, which that doesn't make terrible sense, but we don't no. know. We don't have all the workings of the opening the portal to the Garden of Eden thing. Um, mm. So, yeah, but yeah, I just. I thought the magic was interesting and the magic itself being rarely fairly simple and narrow there's only so many combinations and, and things you can do it was portrayed with so much pomp and circumstance around it and such an aura of mystery mm. you know just piles and piles of that stuff on top of it but the um hannah hannah makes use of the magic you know, and she creates a, a legacy spell also that is expressed in a birthmark that protects her bloodline mm. from yeah. people using magic and exploiting them because she knows that's how it's going to go. But it's also not clear if she does it purposely or if it just naturally happens. She creates that um, ancestral temple inside of her rage that's really fascinating that mm. temple of learning to connect with the ancestors and that space where their magic happens and there is knowledge passed through and everything else you know christina doesn't seem to have that but yeah. hannah and her descendants do and therefore they can work between the generations and pass magic and actually do magic in that space they remove the curse from d in that space you know in that ancestral temple yeah, it's almost, almost like a portrayal of uh white magic and black well white person's magic and black person's magic mm, i don't know there was a lot of black people magic from various tribes and even the american south that was not in there mm, no i mean I'm I mean, almost like um, how we how we consider low magic versus high magic. Uh, mm. You know, a lot of people a lot of people perceive it as high magic being these hoity-toity white people in ceremonial robes in a temple, nice temple with gold things and whatnot, and low magic being more of more of the the pagan, the country folk. Um, you know, that that earth earthy based type of magic. Yeah. Um, and it was almost portrayed as the high magic is the white person's magic and the low magic is the black person's magic. Yeah, Just yeah. Just seemed like that. Yeah. I haven't heard that dichotomy in many years, but yeah, I remember that used to be a pretty big yeah. thing. And yeah, a lot of people used to interpret it that way. Yeah. There's lots of other interpretations, well, obviously. Yeah, and the terrible black and white magic dichotomy that's also yeah, racist. Yeah. Um, but yeah there was some of that and you know in the end they uh, Letitia and Atticus's family and everyone they inherit it they get it they get their birthright they get the magic mm. and so now they have access to all of this that they can do in addition to other magics because Letitia had no problem calling up somebody finding someone to come cleanse and protect her house you know mm. That was not seemingly a struggle for her to do that. So she has access to that magic, even in the 
um, employing it through someone else situation, which, you know, a lot of people, we talk about access to magic and we think that means they have to learn it and practice it, mm. but they just have to be, it just has to be culturally accessible. Yeah. And there's also, when it comes back to the location thing as well, mm -hmm. um, especially that, uh, Atticus and his family inherit the other magic. Mm -hmm. So. Um, they have roots to both uh, forms of magic at the end of the day. Yeah. And they become more and more powerful. Cool. I would like to see <laughs> that version of the history of the U.S. Mm, that would be very cool. A bunch of black people get magic. That would be awesome. Mm. So... Part of what leads Dee to end up cursed by the cops is that she runs away from Emmett Till's funeral. And we find out kind of um, just through dialogue and, and mentioned things that Emmett was her close friend. And you think back and they were all playing together, but she called him Bobo quite often instead of Emmett. But she did call him Emmett a few times. But mm. the the emotional impact of what is happening because of what happened to Emmett Till is brought up again it's just reference to the side you know it's not um we don't see the funeral inside the church house and you know it was controversial because Emmett Till's mother had an open coffin so that everyone could see what happened to her son and it was mm -hmm. it was horrific you know and that sends D in her own spiral of just terror, existential terror, you know, knowing that could happen to her friend. And there's no good reason for it. There's no justification. There's no rationalization of that kind of horror. And then the complexity that comes up between Ruby and Christina as they confront and deal with that and you see the callousness and the complete lack of care in Christina because she's single-minded. She's got to do her yeah. spell to become immortal. And that's all that matters, you know, but she doesn't care about anything else. Yeah. She doesn't care about anything else, and, but she decides to test out her spell somehow by paying some people to beat her like mm, Emmett Till. And kill her yeah. like Emmett Till? I'm not sure what that was exactly. And if she wasn't already immortal, what was happening there magic-wise? Because she crawls back up out of the water. Well, she's got the Mark of Cain, the invincibility spell. Well, that one's... Yeah, but... It was very confusing, because yeah. I mean, she gets barbed wire put around her throat thrown into water and a couple seconds later she comes out how the how does she get the barbed wire off her throat yeah i mean <laughs> and the the guys who beat her up are like why would anybody want to die that way which i think mm -hmm. you know is a poignant thing emmett till definitely didn't want to die that way mm -hmm. um, definitely didn't want to die you know he was falsely accused but and it almost i thought for a minute maybe they were trying to humanize Christina a bit you know she does seemingly love Ruby even though 
ultimately she exploits her and mm. you know shows up as her using her for another spell to get what she wants but she seems to just kind of be pervertedly using this story to test something out to test out her yeah. magics and it's just you know she's not just this perverse caricature when she's with other people she's like this all the time mm. you know but yeah. I, think it's, I think it shows that driving force that somebody can have that narcissistic behavior because um, she definitely loves ruby uh, but as you say later on she i don't know if she killed ruby or or what happened but she there's, transforms into ruby yeah, there's a really brief shot of ruby in the bed um like the other two like william and the other lady mm. because she transforms into ruby so there's a really brief brief shot there where ruby's in the, a bed with an iv and all the stuff in the, her lab mm. so yeah i'm not and sure christina did that to her so yeah is that it's that it's that whole narcissistic drive i have a, a purpose i need to become immortal i love you but i don't give a shit you know yeah i don't know that christina could be said to have loved ruby just fascinated with her and mm. you know may have just ultimately used her as a doorway to get into yeah. the family to manipulate them to do what she wanted mm. so yeah that was definitely there yeah and complex shit complex shit but mm. this show is definitely worth a watch and a rewatch. um and i and i don't I don't know that there's anything in this show that I would be like, this is magic you can use. Mm. Except what the Mambo does. I mean, that's magic that's pretty common. You know, protection on the house and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's not like, oh, you can take this as an idea for a spell or this is an idea for a spell. It's bigger themes than that. Much bigger themes mm. than that. Um, and I think, a you know, an understanding of um people dealing with shit very much a psychological thriller but i don't think there's anything in this where i'd be like oh that's a useful bit yeah that's true because i mean the, as you say the mambo's magic was kind of more realistic whereas the sons of adam is completely fantastical yeah they're, but... they're, 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 they're all in that um antechamber or something at one point and watching the three of them uh in the manor and mm -hmm. it's just this it's this kind of invisible wall yeah what the hell's that about yeah that's that's really weird and um the great underground chambers that happen to have an elevator into Letitia's house mm. you know that's kind of weird i mean where they do magic by pulling on their ancestors to help them that's pretty cool but that's definitely not part of the sons of adam that's no. the inheritance of hannah you know no. and, and having help from ancestors and family and that sort of thing but you know even the um words location body thing i mean maybe could distill some ceremonial magic down like that and understand it that way but 
that's not really how a lot of magic functions, or it's not the way that a lot of it is conceptualized. Mm. Yeah, it's when uh, Christina's telling Atticus about the how to do the protection spell. Um, I can't quite remember what she says, but she did. She does bring up content there, um, but it wasn't the it wasn't the three, um, you know, body location, etc. There was something else. And it's definitely intention because when they're doing it, um, Montrose says something like, um, didn't she say that intent uh, was part of it because he's dyslexic? Mm. Yeah, and he says he has an intent to protect his son and his yeah. grandson. Well, yeah, I think um, intent really is becoming a controversial subject in the pagan community. Um, partially because there is uh, a little quote line that's passed around in a lot of trauma circles um, which big overlap lots of people learn paganism because they have suffered some sort of trauma or been cast out from a community in some way and that is impact over intent and the mm. idea there is that it doesn't matter if you didn't intend to hurt me you hurt me but when that becomes an absolute statement, it's a great statement used in therapy to help people heal, then we have the, the counter in modern neo-paganism, which is intent is everything. The gods know your heart. Mm. You know, that you don't have to have the right trappings, that you don't have to say the right words. That sometimes you don't even have to speak out loud because you just have to intend it. You just have to, to want it. Which, you know, I don't think either of those extremes are actually useful when it comes to magic. I don't think a tent is enough. If it was, we could all just make wishes on dandelions and that would be that. You know? That would be fantastic. And the intent is everything gets into some weird victim blamey bullshit. Because the reason your magic fails in that case is just because you don't want it bad enough. Mm. That's... That's some crap. And impact over intent as an absolutist statement means that it never matters how you feel. You can't fuck up and make it right. Because if, it, if your intent doesn't matter in any way, you can't learn from the situation and try to do better. So, mm. you know, I think we pick up on that in this story because that question of intent and that spectrum and where it is and how it matters and what it means is so prescient especially in pagan circles because of that that overlap that we're all experiencing and i've watched both of those phrases thrown around in very malicious ways in pagan communities um some of them by someone who's hurting and you know when people are hurting they lash out and they hurt other people uh, to protect themselves, and some by people who just want control and want to hurt others. Mm. And then lots and lots of just innocent, this is what somebody said, so I'm going to repeat it. You know, and I think intent and its place in magic is super important. I mean, we have the witch's pyramid to know to will to dare to be silent. And I've heard lots and lots of arguments over what to will and to dare really mean and where they belong and how to interpret them. People seem to figure out what to know means and to be silent mm -hmm. 
has has been debated frequently, but it's not as unclear unclear as a place of intent amongst to will and to dare. Yeah. And our unique our unique situation right now with social media and high levels of communication and everything else going on, um, that morphing of the importance of intent and impact and real world versus internal world and the power of the logos and how words really do have power, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's an interesting development to watch, but also nobody wants to study the bombs while they stand in the middle of the war. So yeah yeah <laughs> very well said darling <laughs> <laughs> i never have a conclusion with these things just an arc <laughs> is there ever a conclusion <laughs> should there ever be a conclusion that's the other question well i don't have answers because i'm still working through shit you know yep i always are wrestling with that stuff myself and you know when i was younger i thought i knew we all do mm. when we're young we all think we know things and then, and when, then, we, then we get older and we realize we don't yeah. yeah with time we have time to take them apart and really look at all of it and go oh well now that i've had more experiences perhaps not <laughs> <laughs> we realize we, we will never know never really know never really just know, know more yeah. yeah which you know is why i kind of agree with the whole if it works for you do it because if you can step into a paradigm and a structure of beliefs and make it function and have successful magic great just don't move in mm. you know um don't mistake the the paradigm and the rules you've adopted for reality because you can always change them and keep changing yeah, but that doesn't mean you can just cobble together a, a house of sticks and it always works. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest problem. It always has been the biggest problem that people um, get so stuck on one thing. That's that's it. That's that's the holy grail, and they're not willing to adapt, grow, or anything like that. Well, they're not willing to acknowledge that their singular experience is not multiplied through everyone else's experience. Mm. That people are different and have different lives and different experiences and different viewpoints, you know. The, the, the great example of eyewitness testimony, you can have three people be an eyewitness to an event and they will tell three completely different stories because their experiences were different. You know, and we used to hold up eyewitness testimony as like the greatest, most important thing, but they were there. But their experience and memory of it is entirely dependent upon their own experience and how they yeah. related to it. You know, they might mix things up. It might have been an ex intense emotional experience. And so the for some reason, their brain wasn't processing the input the same way. And then we mm -hmm. want to take that shaky foundation as the reasoning for our magic and try to say that that is the one universal way and should apply to everyone else when it's not even whole cloth in and of itself mm. yep strange people we are mm. Mm. yeah 
get more connected realize your infinite connection to all other living beings and you stop with that me 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 story because uh, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> hold up <laughs> okay so that was our review of Lovecraft Country and a little bit extra because we like to do the extra stuff <laughs> alright so thanks for joining us thanks for watching if you have any questions or comments just leave them uh, below and if you would like to become a member, if you want one already, you know where to find us. And we'll see you next time on What's on the Telly. Bye-bye. Oh.